Turn to Hebrews, if you would. It's interesting. Uh, occasionally this happens where um, the Sunday school uh, subject and the, uh, the topic of the morning end up overlapping a bit, and that's somewhat what's going to happen today. I, uh, I was going to bring you a talk on the specific doctrines, I guess I'll call it that, or ways of beliefs of the Anabaptists that set them apart from the Catholic Church and the Reformers. And as I dug into the first doctrine, I realized that that's all the further I had to go. I wanted to spend the majority or, or all of the time on, on this particular subject. And the title of this subject is found in Hebrews 2 and verse 3. I'm going to read all three verses just so we get the context. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us, unto us by them that heard him. And I know I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence, but I'm going to stop there. So great a salvation. I'd like to talk to you this morning about not only the Anabaptist way of thinking of salvation, but the biblical way of thinking about salvation. One of the last messages that Arnie brought to us before his death a few years ago was called The Simplicity of the Gospel. And he made a point in that message that the gospel is not hard to understand. And I concur with that. And so it is not my interest this morning to complicate a simple message. That's not what I want to do. But what I do want to do is clarify exactly what it does mean to be saved. And we, we have a very good start. We talked about it in the devotional in the Sunday school, and we're going to just we're just going to hopefully clinch it here. And and um, and uh, I realize as I speak on the subject that it's important that I say the right thing. So you can pray for me that the right thing will be said. What is your attitude and understanding of salvation? I don't know how you would answer that question. How would you answer the question if someone asked you, are you saved? Probably most of you would say, yeah, yes, I'm saved. That's probably what you would say. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't say that. But I, there's an interesting, interesting quote that I came across recently. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to see what you think. Nobody in the Bible ever used the word saved in his personal testimony. The reason for this is that the word salvation is such an immense word that nobody would ever be able to claim a full experience at any given moment. It is a process as much as an event. I don't know what you think of that. Um, I had to digest that a bit. And I'm going to give you another interesting side note to that particular quote. That particular quote was given by a very dug-in evangelical preacher. Now that should make you think for a second because we generally throw all evangelicals in one camp. Yep, they're once saved, always saved people. 
they don't have the proper view of salvation. We tend to do that, and that's probably not fair. Who are we to judge how other people think or whether they have things right or wrong? It's good to consider, but it's not good to judge. I found that interesting. It doesn't really matter, but it is an interesting side note. And I can't, I can't document whether what this person said is correct or not. I somewhat just take his word for that, that nobody in the Bible ever used the word saved in his personal testimony. I don't know if that's true or not. But I did come across Paul's testimony in Galatians 2.20, and he says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that's a good testimony of salvation. So let's explore what it means to be saved or to be a Christian. And I want to take you back now and give you a little bit of history here as far as where the Anabaptists found themselves in the early 1500s and why their view differed so much from everyone around them. So it's no news to you that in the early 1500s and for many hundreds of years prior to that, the Catholic Church had very much created a salvation by works. They had um, basically taken the scriptures away from people and they said, people, if you do penance, if you say the right prayers, if you do the pilgrimages, if you do all these things, that's how you're saved. And these people were ignorant. They thought that was true. And so they did all these things. Very, very corrupt meaning of salvation. They also had this interesting idea of the superabundant merits of the saints, they called it. And, and, and you that know anything at all about history understand this, where they believed that certain saints, and Jesus even, and Mary especially, these, these certain saints actually had more credit, salvation credit, than they could actually use or needed to, to get inheritance eternal life. So what you could do as a poor soul was you could uh, find somebody that was selling indulgences and you could buy some inheritance to eternal life. You could kind of lessen your time in purgatory. And the really good news was if you had a drunken uncle or brother or father or somebody that you knew certainly needed help and he was suffering in purgatory, you could, you could find somebody who was selling these indulgences and you could buy their way out of purgatory. What a wonderful thing. You could lessen that. And the, and the more money you gave, the shorter the time became. So this became an extremely profitable uh, venture for the Catholic Church. And one of the best-known indulgence sellers was Johann Tetzel. And uh, again, you probably heard his name. But he was, uh, he was one of the uh, indulgence sellers there in, in Germany during when Luther was there in his early years. And he'd come through Germany there just selling indulgences. He was a great salesman, did a great job. In fact, I don't know how many, how many dollars worth of money that uh, he raised to uh, put into St. Peter's Basilica. But it is true that there is a, quite a bit of, a, quite a chunk of dough that, uh, that came from Johann Tetzel's selling of indulgences that went right into St. Peter's Basilica. And you can go over and see that today if you wish. Um, so anyway, that, this is how the Catholic Church raised money for this particular um, well, for different things, but at that point it was the Basilica. Anyway, he was a, he was a great salesman. He scared people to death uh, with his sales pitch, and so he did a great job raising money. He had uh, this little, uh, this is what I understand, he had this little uh, 
ditty that he would say. He would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so, boy, the coffers just filled right up. In fact, he was asked once if, uh, if somebody could buy indulgences in advance, and, and he, he assured them that they could. And so this person bought his indulgence only to hours later rob Tetzel. So the thing kind of backfired a little bit there, but uh, um, it, it maybe worked. I'm not sure. Anyway, this really raised the ire of Martin Luther. And he said, enough is enough. And through his study of the scripture, he decided that this indulgence thing was heresy and it had to be stopped. And anybody that knows, again, any minute piece of history knows that on October 31st, 1517, he goes out on the church door there in Wittenberg and he nails his 95 thesis to the church door building. And those 95 theses was the 95 reasons he came up with that the selling of indulgences was dead wrong and uh, it should be immediately stopped. Well, that's a story in and of itself. Luther never, ever intended to start a Lutheran movement. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church wanted no parts of that. They were more than happy with their work salvation and their indulgences and so on and so forth. And uh, so... They said, Brother Martin, you can take a hike. Well, they didn't call him brother either. They said, you can take a hike. And so, through a series of circumstances, he starts his own church. I do find it interesting that to this day, the, the Catholic Church defends the selling of indulgences. I'm going to read you something right out of the Catholic uh, Encyclopedia. It may seem strange that the doctrine of indulgences should have proved such a stumbling block and excited so much prejudice and opposition. By the explanation of this, but the explanation of this may be found in the abuses which unhappily have been associated with what is in itself a beneficial practice. In spite of all this, disorders continued and furnished the pretext for attacks directed against the doctrine itself, no less than against the practice of indulgences. Here, as in many other matters, the love of money was the chief root of the evil. Indulgences were employed by mercenary ecclesiastics, or rogue churchmen, as a mean of monetary gain. So in other words, they said, we had to drop the practice because there was just too many crooked people. And they took advantage of the system. But the system itself is still a good system. Now, isn't that interesting? All these years later, there's, there's defense for that. And, and that's fine. I, don't, I, I mean, it's not fine. But we'll just stop with that. Okay. So Luther understandably reacted to this. And all good reason he did. And he said, this is not the way salvation is to be come by. He said, salvation is by faith alone. This is probably one of Luther's biggest mistakes. Here's what he did. Let's say that uh, green is correct doctrine. That is the proper view of salvation. Now, the Catholic Church, unfortunately, uh, I don't have the right colors up here, but what is green a mixture of? What two colors make green? What is it? Yellow and blue, right? So, the, let's, say, this, let's call this yellow today. It, it's actually orange, but I don't have a yellow. So, uh, over here is the Catholic Church. They have their false doctrine of works. That's yellow. It's false. Now, what, 
what Luther, he, I don't think he meant to do this. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think he meant to do this. But what he did is he overreacted. Here, I need a blue here. And he came over here and he said, no, he said, salvation is by faith alone. So what he did is he, uh, he went over here. Instead of bringing the church back to correct doctrine, he took it over here and he created another false doctrine. Now before you throw me out of the pulpit, let me explain. Let me explain Luther's mistake. He was partially right, but he was partially wrong. And it has, in essence, what, what, it hap- what happened because of his misunderstanding or overreaction, follow what you will, he actually produced a church that was in many ways actually worse than the Catholic Church. That's what he did. So the question just begs an answer. If the Catholic Church was wrong and Luther produced a, a church that didn't get it right, then what is right? Did the Anabaptists get it right? Do we have it right? Well, by all means, the gospel is simple. It can't be that hard, all right? So let's just look at, at what the Bible says about salvation, and let's see if we can come to a proper understanding. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do is I thought it would be good just to go to the, to the Gospels and Acts, where we have hands-on um, literal stories about how salvation was presented to people. And I just went through the Gospels and Acts. Anytime there was a person that came either to Jesus or one of the apostles and said, what do I have to do to be saved? I was curious to know the answer that either Jesus or the apostles gave that person. So you just sit back here and and, and listen up, and I'm just going to run through these. We can't turn to all of them because we don't have the time. So in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he didn't ask the question, but he was digging at it. And Jesus gave him the answer, even though he didn't ask the question. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says... You have to have a noticeable and a palpable change that only can be gotten through the Spirit. Nicodemus, you've been a Pharisee. You've been a good Pharisee. But it is not enough, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. That's the answer Nicodemus got. A few chapters later, well, not really. It's in, in, in Matthew then. We have the, the story of the rich young ruler. Behold, there came one and said unto him, Good master, What good thing shall I do? What good thing should I do that I may have eternal life? Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't say, You rich young ruler, you have it wrong. Don't ask me what you should do. You ask me what you must believe. He answered the man's question. He says says to him, If you will be perfect, he says, Go sell what you have, give to the poor, You will have treasure in heaven, and you come and follow me. Go sell your stuff. Give it to the poor and follow me, and you will be perfect, he says. Isn't that interesting? Luke 10. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How do you read? He answered and said, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered right. You do this and you will live. Well, of course, then we know the, we know the rest of the story. He, uh, 
he 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 you know he says, well, who's my neighbor? You know, you got to help me out here a little bit. Who's my neighbor? And then we have this wonderful story that we talked about here. Was it last Wednesday night or sometime real recently? And uh, you know the story. I don't even have to recount it to you. But what we forget is the is actually what Jesus was addressing. He was addressing the initial question: What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The answer is is i got to help the Samaritan. Or I mean the, the guy by the road. Whether I'm a Samaritan or a Levite or a priest, it's my job to help the guy by the road. And if I do that, Jesus said, you do this, and uh, you're going you're gonna, to, you shall live. You shall live. Interesting. What about Zacchaeus? This is another interesting story. And I'm not going to reiterate it. You know the story. But uh, Jesus looks up in the tree tells Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. Zacchaeus and Jesus go to the house, and we don't know what the conversation was. But there was a conversation that took place there between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And at some point, Zacchaeus said, Jesus, I'm going to give back four times what I took from somebody that I took, that I shouldn't have, that I cheated him. And then after that's done, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. And what did Jesus say? This day... This day has salvation come to this house, as much as this man is a son of Abraham. That's what he told him. Did Jesus say, or did Zacchaeus say, Jesus, I, I believe on you? No, he didn't. He said, I'm going to have this stuff to the poor and all this stuff. And Jesus said, this man is saved today because of what he said. Now, I will grant you, we do not know what the story was before Zacchaeus made that statement. Neither do we know what Zacchaeus' heart was. Jesus did. Jesus knew that. But there was something about that confession that he said, this day salvation has come to this man's house. The Jews of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching to them in Acts 2, he says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now that seems more proper, right? But think about it. What does repent mean? It means to think completely differently. Think completely differently than you used to think. A whole new pattern of thinking. Your enemies are now your friends. Your greed is gone. Your interests are everything about the kingdom. Repent and be baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch. So you know the story there again. Philip's going along, sees a eunuch, uh, jumps in the chariot, and he says, you understand what you're reading? The eunuch says, I don't. Philip explains it to him. And it seemed like that's all it took for the eunuch. The eunuch said, well, here's water. Why, why can't I be baptized? And Philip said this. He said, you can. He said, uh, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch said, I believe. Philip said, get out of the chariot. Go down to the water. We're going to baptize you. And they came up out of the water. Philip's gone. The Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing. Cornelius. We know that story. It's kind of a lengthy story, but when Peter finally gets to Cornelius' house, this is the first Gentile Christian, Peter opened his mouth, and this is the first part of Peter's sermon. He says, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth, and that word feareth is where we get our, is the same word as we use phobia. Okay? It's the same word. He that feareth, or he is in awe and reverence, absolute adoration, okay? 
God and worketh or toils and labors for righteousness. So he that is feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. Isn't that interesting? Fears God, works righteousness, he's accepted of God. Now, Peter kept preaching. If you go down nine verses in verse 43, he says this. He says, to him, to God, give all the prophets, I'm sorry, it'd be Jesus. To him, Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall have remission of sins. Now, was Peter's sermon contradictory? It was not. He hit all the points. He said, you fear God, you work righteousness, and you uh, believe in him. He nailed them all right there. And the last one I have is the, is the Ephesian jailer. Uh, you know that story too. When he came out, he goes to Paul and says, what, what, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. And uh, there again. So when you look at this, uh, this, these different scenarios that I just laid out to you, it's interesting how each person got a little different answer. Uh, perhaps. Some of them are somewhat the same, but some of them, it would seem like that when they asked the question, it seemed like that the answer was, I must do something. On the other hand, when the question was asked, it seemed like it was more the correct answer. Believe and repent and be baptized, these kinds of things. So is, is this make sense to anybody? Is this self-contradictory? What, uh, what do you think? Well, let's keep going. The thing that clears this all up, at least for me, I hope for you, is the fact that salvation in the Bible is used in different tenses. Once a person understands the tense, everything falls in place. So I'm going I'm to run you through this and uh, see if this helps, helps you think through it as well. In 2 Timothy 1.9, we have a past perfect tense. Who hath saved us? He's talking about Jesus. Who hath saved us and called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. All right? Past perfect tense. Hath been saved. And, And Paul's saying here, it was not by works. All right, then we have a past tense in Titus, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Past tense. Now, present tense. And unfortunately, our King James Bible, and I'm not knocking our King James Bible, but it's unfortunate that our King James does not make the present tense part of this very clear. Uh, The NIV does very well at distinguishing that. So I am going to read you the verses uh, using some NIV verbiage, and I'll tell you where it is. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved, and that should really, in our language, or the way we talk today, should be to us that are being saved. It is the power of God, being saved. Second Corinthians 2.15, 
For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and that again should be being saved, and in them that perish. And I just picked up this one this morning in our Sunday school lesson. The writer brought out that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it was the last verse in our Sunday school text, it talks about being, or, uh, we are changed from glory to glory. Uh, the writer brought out that there again, in that particular verse, it would be better rendered being changed from glory to glory. So, so there you have a present tense part of our salvation. Then there's a future tense. And um, two verses just quickly on future tense. Matthew 24, 13. He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And Matthew 10, 22, uh, different settings, same verbiage. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth unto the end shall be saved. So whenever we consider these different tenses of the word saved, we begin to understand the greatness of our salvation that the Hebrew writer talked about. The immenseness of the salvation. In fact, it is safe to say that we will not truly, wholly experience the full scope of salvation until Jesus returns or we die, whichever comes first. And we are totally saved, not only from the power and the guilt of sin, we are saved from the very presence of sin. No longer there. Let's consider a few other points that will affect the way we understand salvation. And, and here again, I'm going to be comparing and contrasting um, what I think is the biblical view versus maybe more the Reformed view. And I, I have to do it, but I'm, I'm aware that I do not wish to cast judgment. I think there are people in other churches that... I'm going to say are probably saved. They're doing what they know in the light of what they understand, and I'm not here to judge them. I'm simply here to compare and contrast to help you to understand. So what about the view of the sinfulness of sin and the acceptance that we as an individual are responsible for our own sin? We say, well, yeah, sure, we know that. Well, there is, there is a, uh, an argument made, and not really an argument, it's true that we are born as sinners. We are born into the world with what is called the Adamic nature or original sin. It can't be helped. We're born this way, okay? We have it. It's there. We don't really ask for it, but we have it. So you can either choose to emphasize the fact that we have the Adamic nature, which is what the Reformers did. They chose to emphasize that to the exclusion of emphasizing that I am by myself responsible for my sin. It doesn't matter if I didn't get it from Adam. I'm responsible for my sin. See, if we shift the blame over to Adam, then, then we say, well, I can't really help anything. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just I was born with it. It's the way it is, rather than just making, taking the responsibility. You know what? Yes, Adam sinned, but I did too. Okay? Now, why does this matter? It matters because if, if a person goes down that road, you get to the point where you're like, I'm a sinner. I can't really help that. I'm totally depraved. I can't even as much as reach out to God for salvation. Um, and even after I am saved, I'm still depraved. And, and the whole thing just kind of runs into what we know as the Calvinistic thinking. And again, I don't wish to cast bad light on that, but it's, it's somewhat of a false way of thinking. It also is what the, the whole idea of uh, 
infant baptism is built on. We have to get this baby baptized because this baby is not saved. We've we got to get this baby baptized. And it was, it was, it was somewhat the, uh, the foundation that infant baptism in the Protestant circles, what that, why they, they argue for that. The Anabaptists, and I think the Bible, on the other hand, sure, they understood Adamic nature, the, the, the origin of sin and so on, but they weren't so concerned about that. They were concerned that they were sinners, I am a sinner, I am responsible for my sin, and I am accountable for my sin, and I must confess and amend my life and forsake that sin and move on. I must be born again. Men of Simon put it like this. If now the power of original sin, or the Adamic nature is to be broken, and actual sin, like theft that I may have committed, be forgiven, then we must believe that the word of the Lord, be born again by faith and by true repentance, resist original sin, and die to actual sin, if we are to be pious. All right. The other thing that, uh, it's, that is important for us to understand is the understanding of what is grace. Now, often we refer to grace as God's unmerited love and mercy in granting forgiveness and justification to a repentant sinner. And that is true. That is grace. But does grace not go one step further? Is grace not this? And this was somewhat the Anabaptist understanding of grace. It is a divine influence on the heart that is reflected in its, that reflects itself in a life of discipleship. God's grace to us is the power God gives us to help us serve Him. When you think of that, the whole uh, verse in Peter that talks about growing in grace makes a lot of sense. If grace is only the, the mercy that God extends to me to forgive my sin, and that is indeed grace, it's not that it's not, but if that's all it is, then how do I grow in that? But if grace is something that's extended to me to help me live a holy night, life, then I can grow in that See, The Reformers believed that grace saved from the guilt of sin. The Anabaptists, and I believe the biblical understanding should be that it not only saves from guilt, but from power. The Song Rock of Ages has it right when it says it's a double pure. It saves from the guilt and the power. What's the place of daily discipleship? The concept of imputed righteousness of Christ, which saves a man in his sin, sharply con contrasts with the idea that we are saved from our sin. Okay? In our sin or from our sin? Too often, the Anabaptist view that a man was saved from his sin and that living a regenerated, regenerated life was critical to his salvation, these people were falsely accused of a work salvation. Menno Simons wrote, wrote this in, in a rebuttal. He says, We do not believe or teach that salvation is of merits or works, as our opponents accuse us, without any truth, but solely by the grace through Jesus. But he also writes this, we participate in the divine life when we understand, grasp, and follow, and emulate Christ, not according to his divine nature, but according to his life and conversation on this earth, shown forth among men in his works and deeds as an example set that we should follow. 
So, the, the idea of discipleship unfortunately escaped the Reformation, the, the, the Reformers. And, and that, that's, that's, that's unfortunate because a good thing went awry and what could have been so good turned out so poorly. The Reformers, and especially Luther, as I said, regrettably missed the, the uh, or misunderstood these people as having a work, work salvation and did not teach the imperative of following Christ. In fact, it's unfortunate that Luther went so far as to say that there's certain books of the New Testament that are altogether unnecessary to salvation. Listen to this. In a word, St. Gospels John, in his first epistle, Paul, Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know. Even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to the others. For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. How does that hit you? So Matthew's, Matthew's book that gives us more of Jesus' words, that in, includes the whole Sermon on the Mount, which we, we appreciate, we, we ascribe to that. That's not necessary for salvation. That's not necessary. There's nothing at all. If we never had that book, it would not, it would not matter. I don't wish to linger long on this. I just give you to that, give you that quote to help you to understand how far Luther swung to what I would say was false doctrine. It takes a fairly arrogant person. I think I'm safe in saying that. To say, there are certain books in the Bible that are absolutely unnecessary. You wouldn't need them. In fact, it'd be better off if you wouldn't read them a whole lot. All right. So the last part here. So what about faith and works? How does this, how does this work together? Is it one versus the other? Is it both? How does it fit together? As I already mentioned, Luther reacted, and it's understandable. I, got, I, want, to, I want to just point out, it was understandable why he reacted so violently to, to the work salvation. He saw a lot of corruption, and it's understandable. But what Luther did, and uh, he went to some texts in the Bible that ended up becoming his favorite, such as these. In Romans 3.27, what is boasting then? It is excluded. By what? Law of works, nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we can conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 2 Timothy 1, Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, these verses are all in the Bible. Luther had every right to, to read these verses and preach about them. He, he did. They are true, they are inspired. But did you notice that all of the verbs in those verses are past tense? They are. And it is true there isn't a work. There is, I could crawl the world over on my hands and knees. I could climb up a mountain backwards. I could walk over hot coals. I could give all my money to feed the poor. I could do 
anything and everything, and I could never buy my salvation. I could not do it. Luther was right on that. He was. But the problem was, he could not rectify where James fit in this whole thing. It bothered him. So he said, ah, it's an epistle of straw. Really, really even shouldn't be there. If you, want, if you want to take the time to be interesting, just Google Luther's preface to the book of James. It's unbelievable. You know, how he pretty much just pretty much trashes the book before you read it. So he, in, what he was doing was he was setting up his reader to think a certain way before you read the book. Probably not extremely wise. So here's probably Luther's gravest mistake. He could not find a verse in the Bible where it said that we are saved by faith alone, so he invented one. In Romans 3.28, if you have the German Lutheran translation, here's how it reads. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. When he was confronted, Luther, you put a word in there that is neither in the Greek or the Latin text. What's up with that? Aren't you adding to God's word? When he was confronted by that, here, here was his answer. And this, he was addressing the Pope. When he, and he had no time for the Pope, so that may somewhat be the reason the language is so harsh. But here's what he said. You tell the Pope that Dr. Martin Luther will have it so. I will have it so, and I order it to be so, and my will is reason enough. I know very well that the word alone is not in the Latin or Greek text. Alrighty then. That was Dr. Martin Luther there for you. Um... There is one, one verse in the Bible, and only one, where the word alone does follow the word faith. It's in James 2.24. You can turn there if you want. You see then how that a man is, by works, a man is justified, and not by faith only. The NIV and the RSV render that, you see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. That bug, Martin. He could hardly have that. What Martin Luther, or Martin Luther, yeah, I just about said Martin Luther King. But anyway, um, what he what what he what he did when he stuck that word alone in Romans is he actually ended up making the Bible contradict itself. He certainly did confuse it. All right, so how does this work? Well, let's look at another set of verses. It's always wise to get the full context of a document. So let's read. I read you some of the verses that Luther liked to highlight. Now let's read some other verses. Therefore, this is Jesus, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And it didn't fall. He built it on a rock and it didn't fall. But what did he do? How did he do that? He did Jesus' words. John 8, 51. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. 1 John 2, 3. And hereby do we, we do know if we know him, if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 29. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Romans 2.6, interesting, this comes from uh, Luther's favorite book, actually. Who will render, talking about God, God who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance, 
in well-doing, seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. 2 Peter 1.10 Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, if you're paying attention, all of those verbs are present tense. They're present tense verbs. Okay? Now, we have some that are future tense. But the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Revelation 20.12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. In, written in the books. And what was in the books? According to their works. Folks, you've got to take the document as a whole. And that's where Luther failed. I'm sorry to say it, but he failed there. I don't think he meant to. I think he meant well. But they've got him into trouble. So, now let's get down to the crux of it. What is the biblical relationship of faith and works? So, I already mentioned it. The new birth is not experienced by anything other than accepting Jesus' blood. We talked about that this morning. That makes us partakers of that divine nature. I don't think we'd even argue. We wouldn't even have a. We couldn't even stir up an argument on that this morning. We all believe that. We understand that. We can't buy it. It's it's free. It's just there. We couldn't even possibly afford it. We couldn't give anything to gain that. But at this point, after he accepts that blood for the forgiveness of his sin, and he becomes a partaker of that divine nature, he must become a disciple of Christ and follow him, keep his commandments. And we have some examples. We, we, we read through that at the beginning. What are some things we do? Well, we, we help the guy by the road. You know, that's just you know, one thing. But make application where it hits you. But we enter wholeheartedly into the program of the kingdom. That's what we do. And here is where we sometimes become confused. Good works is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's not that. It's not a church rule book. It's not what it is. Neither do we approach good works as some sort of brownie point or merit system that we're going to gain favor with God by doing. Even, even clothing the naked, all these things. You, you read in, uh, what is it, Corinthians there. I think that's what helped me out here. I think it's Corinthians, the uh, chapter where it says, even if I gave everything to feed the poor and I don't have love, nothing. So even that won't, won't cut it. So that's not, that's not what it's talking about. But what it's talking about is when we do these things, these works, with an attitude that we want to serve God and we want to give God everything we have to serve Him and His kingdom and his program. And we want to pass that on to others. So our time and our resources and our abilities, we just give and give and give in the program of the kingdom. And we don't even keep track. It's just, it is just like Luke, or Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. So likewise, when you have done all these things that you were commanded, you still say, I'm an unprofitable servant. It was only my duty to do. If you have that attitude... You are doing good works and you are doing it with a proper attitude. And we can't forget the verse in Hebrews 13, 16, where it says, But to do good and communicate, don't forget, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. 
Now, I just said you can't use this as a brownie point or merit system, but let me tell you, if you're doing this with a servant heart and you are engaging and you are dug into the kingdom and you are doing good works with the right attitude, I want to tell you something. God is well pleased. Think Job. Think Job. Do you think Job was keeping track of all his things he was doing? Indeed, I don't think he was. But God said to Satan, you look at my servant Job. God took notice. God takes notice when you help the guy by the road too. And you do things that please him. And you do it with a servant heart. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Here's another question that needs addressed. Do we automatically do good works after we are saved? Luther did say this, to his credit. He said, good works will follow salvation like fruit on a tree. Was Luther right? He was. He, he was certainly right. The problem was that it certainly didn't work out for him. Certainly didn't work out for him. So the answer, the question is, why? What, what about this? Men of Simon said this, true evangelical faith is of such nature that it cannot be workless or idle. It ever manifests its power. It is the nature of fire to produce heat, sun to produce light, water to produce moisture, and a good tree to produce fruit after its natural properties. So it is also true that the evangelical faith brings forth true evangelical fruit in accordance with its true evangelical nature. So there is indeed a part of this that is true, that until you experience the blood of Christ and you know what true repentance is and you have your sins forgiven, you can't even possibly, what you do doesn't even count. It doesn't, doesn't work. But once you are, you are propelled in that direction. You are. There's something about that divine nature that pushes you in that direction. But, remember, we want to consider the whole document as we try to conclude this thing. So let me read you a few verses that, that we have to consider as we answer this question. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Interesting verbiage. As a standalone verse, you'd say, what? Save thyself. That's what the Bible says. Was Timothy not a Christian? Timothy was a Christian and a pastor. Sure Timothy was. What Paul is saying is here, Timothy, it's not completely automatic. Um, you have the, the new nature, but I want you to remember to continue. You may forget to continue. Just keep on, Timothy. Keep on. Keep on going. You might forget. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. It implies that we could forget. Even though we have the new nature and we've been born again, we can forget. Hebrews 10.24 And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Do you ever think about it? The reason you're here this morning, it could possibly be one, of, one good reason, was so that I can get some provocation from you to go out next week and continue building the kingdom, doing things that, that, that will be good for the kingdom. Well, he says that in verse 25. 25, the very next verse, he says, Don't forget to assemble yourselves together because the day is approaching and this is how you won't forget. 
And then in verse 26 of Hebrews 10, he said, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour, devour the adversaries. Could it be, folks, that our lack of provoking one another to love and good works would make us forget to do that, and we turn away, and suddenly we find ourselves willfully sinning rather than engaged in the kingdom. And the Hebrew writer says, you do that, he said, the outlook isn't good. So the conclusion is this. Indeed, there is a definite cause and effect relationship between the new birth and good works. cannot be denied. You must be born again. You must be to bring forth good fruit. But neither can it be denied that the Bible teaches plainly that it takes some effort and daily maintenance on my part to keep that thing going and to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And again, we come back to our verse in Peter where it says, grow in grace. And in Romans where it says, to them who by persistence, this is how the NIV puts it, to them who by persistence in doing good seek honor, glory, immortality, and so on. In other words, we have that propensity not to persist. So we can call it good works. We can call it obedience. We can call it holy living. We can call it holding fast to the faith. Pick out the one that works for you. The Bible is abundantly clear that we do have a present tense to our salvation and a certain amount of responsibility for its maintenance. The Shalitime Confession says this, and I'm going to conclude with this because this was supposed to be an Anabaptist history lesson and it kind of turned into more of a biblical salvation lesson. But here's what it says. And remember the setting that these people, this was written I think in 1527-ish, something like that. First confession of faith that was ever written by the Anabaptists. And here's how they started out. This is the introduction. It says, A very great offense has been introduced by some false brothers among us, whereby several have turned away from the faith, thinking to practice and observe the freedom of the Spirit and of Christ, but have fallen short of the truth and to their own condemnation are given over to lasciviousness and, license of, and a license of the flesh. They have esteemed that faith and love may do and permit everything and anything, and that nothing can harm or condemn them since they are believers. Article 1 says this, Baptism shall be given to all those who have been taught repentance and amendment of life and who believe truly that their sins are taken away by Christ and to all those who desire to walk in the resurrection of Jesus and be buried with him in death so they may arise with him. Do you notice how concerned they were that, that their people understood what repentance and amendment of life was, discipleship? The reality was that the emphasis, unfortunately, of free grace and faith alone, coupled with the lack of teaching on discipleship, naturally involved into nothing more than a license to sin with a free conscience. And Luther decried the fact. Toward the end of his life, as he viewed the church that he had attempted to set up, he looked at that and he said, I have created something worse than what I came out of. And he dreamed of a day that there would be two separate 
churches inside the Lutheran church. The real church would come over here and they'd meet together and they'd know what true salvation was and what true works and uh, discipleship was. And over here would be these lesser Christians that would meet over here. He literally dreamed of that day. In fact, he told some of his accusers that that's what we're going to do one day. We're going to have the true Christians meet over here on Sunday morning and the other guys, they can kind of do their thing over here. In fact, toward the end of his life, he would refer to his church as the rabble. Can you imagine? If I come here this morning and say, good morning, you rabbles. I mean, I don't know if he did that. But that's what he referred to his church as. What a, what a poor thing. It's been my observation that we have a real propensity to fall in one of two camps. On the one hand, we're very, very reluctant or unwilling to acknowledge that we as Christians have any part in our salvation. And we, we forget there's a present tense. We forget that there's discipleship. We forget that God is concerned that we do these things and build on the rock. Instead, there is an emphasis on the freedom in Christ, the liberty that Christ brings. And we talked about that this morning. And uh, this camp is very, very worried about legalism and, and the, the things that that brings. And, and, and it's true, it can. And they will run 100 miles an hour from anything that sniffs Anything at all like legalism. But when one observes their life, you have to wonder, is there anything about this person that is remotely Christian? But you will always hear the spiritual talk ramp up. Almost always. The other camp says, we're going to emphasize the way of the cross and they exclude the blood of Christ. And they do indeed form a dead legalistic religion. Often these works are emphasized and these works are nothing but a very peculiar, unique detail to a certain true, a certain church group. And they are not works that please God. Too many of these people in this group are truly whited sepulchers. Truly. Today, you find yourself in one of three camps. You either find yourself as a person who has never accepted Christ's blood and has never received his forgiveness. You have never made that start into the kingdom. If you're here this morning, and that's you, and you understand that you have not, you had better join the kingdom. You're in dangerous, dangerous territory. You may be here and you find yourself in the camp where you have made a start in the kingdom, but you have not maintained you have not grown in grace. You are still an infant in your salvation. You're in equally dangerous territory. You have sat under the sound of the gospel Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and you refuse to grow in grace. That is equally dangerous territory. Or, I hope, the bulk of you this morning find yourself in the camp where you have applied the blood of Christ. You have grown in grace. You have understood that you have a part in maintaining your salvation. And you are, like the Ethiopian eunuch, on your way rejoicing.